Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? I've often found that people who have achieved a position of authority, of power, of trust in their professional life tend to be a little off, a little lost in their private lives. You ever had a cop at the family get-together, a school principal in your bowling league, the town preacher standing beside you at the liquor store? Authority figures are weird in the real world. And I think it's because their identity is so fused to their profession. It often outweighs, skews who they truly are as a person. The principal, the preacher, the cop, the judge, the fireman, the pharmacist, the mayor, the doctor. These figures are treated by their communities as if they could do no wrong. As if because they are in a position of trust, then they must be trustworthy individuals. And often this is in fact the case. But when it isn't, when a cop can be a killer, the doctor a diddler, the fireman an arsonist, the preacher a creature, the world becomes a crapshoot to navigate. Sometimes a profession doesn't just serve as an individual's identity. It also becomes their costume, their disguise. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. The Creature Man. You've seen these avenues before. Bleak. Desperate. Disparate. It's the same old thing. Just a little bit older. Unsounding. Unabridged. Casually unwinding. But where are we? We need to check closely the seeds we sprout in ourselves. Nothing can be hidden from God. Pastor John D. White, preaching in front of his humble congregation, a dozen or so men and women of the Christ Community Fellowship. The year is 2012, and the world is about to end. For the creature man, the preacher man, Pastor White. He has been at it a few years now, and his flock, small as it may be, is devout, thankful that John has been a constant for them here in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, the somewhat nomadic little city of 25,000. He had been a surprise, a gift from God, they all agreed. Pastor John White had arrived back in 2007 like an answer to a question the little parish hadn't dared to ask. Would their parish perish without a shepherd. So when the world-weary, middle-aged preacher with the graying, reddish beard, jolly face, and larger-than-life presence landed in Mount Pleasant like a hobo from a train, 
the humble little church was fascinated, reinvigorated by this saintly stranger, John Douglas White, Pastor John Douglas White. And he had instantly become a respected and trusted member of this small patch of the Michigan Mitten, which is crazy, seeing how he was a two-time felon specializing in the brutalization of women. The first had been back in 1980 when he'd been living in Battle Creek, two months before his 23rd birthday. And she'd appeared at his door like an early gift, one that he felt he deserved, having recently returned from the Navy, secured a long-haul trucking gig, and managed to set up a little drug-dealing operation on the side. A young John D. White was full of piss and vinegar and shit, much like he would be 30 years in the future, maybe less vinegar and more shit, but pissy as ever then, when the preacher limped into the final leg of his criminal career. But here, in the 80s, in the first leg, on this beautiful mid-March afternoon of 1980, he's more than ready when he opens the door and finds a figure straight out of the horror mags he so frequently masturbated over, standing on his porch. What are the chances that this doe-like deer would find herself on the wrong doorstep, knocking on the wrong door at the wrong place at the worst time. 17-year-old Teresa Etherton is tall, blonde, pretty, and apologizing. She couldn't be more tempting to a creature like John White. And he seizes the opportunity. Even though John looks like a family member from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies with his unruly red beard, grease-stained cap, crooked teeth and bloodshot eyes. He somehow manages to charm the young lady, asking where she's from, just down the block, where she's to, a friend's house. I got the house numbers backwards apparently, so sorry to disturb you. No, no disturbance at all. Nothing's disturbed here, quite the contrary. The little bird titters and John opens his door wide. The shadow from the home's alcove shields the interaction from the street, but his neighbors are close. The houses are crammed together like hooded heads, and he knows how quickly word travels on this street. The walls are all ears, and he needs to get her inside before the porches are all mouths. Well, it sure was a happy accident meeting you here. Teresa, was it? It was? Oh, say, do you want to see something neat, Teresa, before you go? I just set up a really boss slot car racetrack in here sure would be swell to have someone else check it out. It was a lot of work, and it's top-notch. John D. White may have the pallor of a cryptkeeper, but his deep brown eyes and charming, albeit weird, personality manages to magnetize the young woman indoors, where she is quickly ushered to the basement by the Quasimodo-like Casanova, where halfway down behind him, she finally has a thought of her own, and it's a loud one. Something in Teresa Etherton's malleable mind stiffens, and the 12th-year Battle Creek High School student freezes on the stairs at its insistence. You need to go. The voice in her head is five stairs too late. That's how many she makes up in the attempt to flee before the creature in the basement reaches her and slips a six-inch blade into her back. She is dragged downstairs, kicking, screaming, begging for mercy as the blade comes down a dozen or so more times. Once on the cold floor, next to the slot car setup, 
which is pretty sweet. Don't you think, Teresa? Too bad we got sidetracked here. John D. White demands the girl shut up. Christ, she's so loud. Too loud. The hooded heads outside are surely whispering to one another. John makes a decision. Then a declaration. Quote. You're going to go now, Teresa. I'm really sorry you had to go like this, but... What the fuck? You're just a woman. Then he grabs the girl by the hair and wrenches the blade across her throat. But Teresa isn't as helpless and naive as she seems. She is not a ditzy bimbo from a horror magazine. She is not a dead, long-legged blonde on the floor, ready for rape. She is one thing that John perhaps envisioned, however. She is an actress. He rolls her onto her back, not noticing for all of the blood that he'd only cut her chin and not her throat. She tucked it, her chin, you see. And though her sweater is full of blood blossoms spreading from stab wounds, stiff with no indication of life beneath, Teresa is in fact alive under that sweater as John wipes her mouth of blood and kisses her deeply. He is holding her hand, looking down at her in admiration, about to realize by some twitch or cough or heaving breath that he is not alone in this moment. When a heavy knock comes from his front door upstairs. Shit. And the first skeleton from the eventual preacher's past falls immediately from the closet. So fresh that it's still alive. Not even a skeleton at all. 23-year-old John D. White greets the officers at the door, tells them the girl is downstairs, and is promptly arrested. As he's led to the back of a squad car, he looks around at the hooded heads of his block, each frothing at the mouth with excited fucking morons. An ambulance screams in and the street takes on a parade-like atmosphere as John is driven away, and a young woman covered in blood seems to birth from John's residence. Who is she? What's happening? She is 17-year-old Teresa Etherton, and what they're seeing is nothing short of a miracle. Teresa survives, and John is relieved. His charge lessens significantly in severity from murder to attempted murder. On November 11th of 1981, he stands in front of a judge and says, Quo, I wouldn't listen to people who said I have a problem, and I realize I do now. End quote. 24-year-old John D. White begs for help rather than punishment. The judge agrees that the defendant needs mental health counseling, so he orders this, along with a 5-10 to ten year sentence. And after only a couple of counseling sessions, John tells the doctor that he's fantasizing about killing and then raping the dead bodies of a female prosecutor and defense attorney. They are told about this disturbing admission, but rather than being seen as the enormous threat to society that John is, he is soon released on November 28th of 1983, just over two years into his sentence. An appellate court judge rules that John D. White was given a raw deal, that John's lawyer had failed him after siding with his father, who had paid for the lawyer, and deciding not to seek a mental health evaluation that may have helped his son in an insanity defense. The reason his father hadn't paid it well, it was because the evaluation would have cost him $1,000, and John's father didn't want to pay out any more cash in this whole mess. 
Because John White had claimed that he had amnesia over his attack on young Teresa Atherton and that he blacked out through the crime, the judge decided to release the clearly dangerous homicidal psychopath who had expressed a desire to murder and rape the corpses of two women of the court. A young man, only in his mid-twenties, with a lifetime of opportunity to make good on his sick fantasies, to make up for the one that got away, was released. The appellate judge, later, after his retirement and at the age of 72, would die somewhat prematurely while cutting down some trees on his property. But the widowmaker could hardly make up for the complete lapse in judgment over the case of John Douglas White. Teresa Etherton was not aware of her attacker's release, though she became aware soon after a while, standing in line at the Secretary of State office. She hears a man speaking and joking and laughing behind her, and is certain that her mind is playing tricks on her, until she turns to the familiar voice. The voice that still whispered in her head that she was just a woman, and therefore it didn't matter that she should be killed in this basement, beside this slot car track. And she comes face to face with John D. White, who's standing in line behind her. He smirks at Teresa, and the now 20-year-old, terribly scarred woman, literally and figuratively, seems to smirk back. But it's just a trick of her disfigured chin. Teresa's eyes go wide, and John's smile grows to match them, until his victim turns in a daze to face her nightmare-laden future. John leaves her alone. Some things must be left undone. And Teresa, to this day, seems a little undone. A piece of her may be still in that basement, playing dead beside the slot car track. She marries, tries to move on. But how could she, knowing that her attacker could at any given moment be outside her window, living down the street, or standing behind her at the grocery store? John White gets married too, has a couple of kids, and moves to his hometown of Kalamazoo, Michigan leaving at least three women to wonder where the man who wants to rape their corpses might be at any given moment. He takes work in an industrial laundry, finds a home for his young family, and is amazed as anyone else that he's a free man with a whole life still in front of him. Second chances are hard to come by, and John sees his second chance in a twisted way. He knows that he won't let the next dead girl walk away from him. He behaves himself for a few years until he begins cheating on his wife. With a woman of his same age at the factory, they enjoy a hidden romance, one where they meet behind a grocery store in the middle of the Kalamazoo night on occasion. And his mistress, Vicky Sue Wall, a short, pretty brunette, hops out of her car under the hidden eyes of surveillance cams to join John in his truck a couple times a month and drive off to some makeshift lover's lane. Later, when John becomes a preacher, in his fifties, the age he waits for us at now, back in Mount Pleasant at the beginning of our story, John will tell his followers that this woman, this so-called girlfriend of his, John doesn't share that he was married, of course, had been a drug user, that she had overdosed, and he had been so scared by her sudden death that he left her body to be discovered by someone else. He'd been a fool, a coward, yes, and the consequence had been that the law had blamed him for her death and he had served 13 years for manslaughter. Christ had forgiven him. He'd found Christ during his prison term. His followers in Mount Pleasant forgave him as well, 
They don't blame John for running from the situation. Golly, they can't imagine doing much different themselves. They praise him for sharing the truth and are relieved to know they have the answer as to why their shepherds seem to have fallen from the sky. He was a saved man, and there's nothing more powerful than the truly saved. But of course, it's all a bunch of horse shit. Vicky Sue Wall, 36 at the time of her death, the same age as John back in 1994 when they were seeing each other, was murdered. She was not a drug addict. She was just a woman that was maybe in love. Maybe she tried to push John to leave his wife, or maybe John just couldn't help himself after over a decade of deviant dormancy. The psycho-thriller porn he was then obsessed with probably hadn't helped. Back in the 80s, he couldn't even handle the magazines, with the vampires and the busty brunettes bleeding on the cover. Now they had video cassettes where you could watch a woman be brutally raped, murdered, not necessarily in that order, by some creature. And John wanted badly to know what it was like to have his way with a dead woman. He craved that kind of power. A saved man, a preacher man, is a powerful man, sure. But a creature man? An untethered beast out to fulfill its darkest desires? John D. White somehow justified that there was room for both. After all, maybe God, in the end, just wants a show. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. July 11th, 1994. A deserted Kalamazoo grocery store parking lot. Save John D. White's waiting pickup truck. 3 a.m. Vicky is seen on security cam pulling into the spot beside John. When this tape is shown to John and Vicky's boss at the laundry, he confirms that yes, that's John's truck, and yes, that's Vicky getting into it. He also confirms that the two had been having a widely known affair, widely known within the factory at least. What happens next can't be seen on the incriminating video, but later will be shared by John as part of a plea deal. There is some kind of disagreement between the two lovers in John's truck. John punches Vicky in the stomach as a result, then strangles her to death with a zip tie. 
He then drives out to a rural area, a corpse, now his passenger, and finally gets what he's been chasing all these years, after he missed on the first one. He gets to live out his fantasy of raping a woman's dead body. Once satiated, John drags his victim, someone he's known and been intimate with for years, out into the brush, where, under the bleak pre-dawn sky, he dumps her like trash. Vicky Sue Wall won't be reported missing for another four days, and her car won't be discovered deserted in the parking lot for another two days on top of that. The security footage leads investigators directly to John D. White's door. His wife is the first to be questioned, and she shares that anything is possible when it comes to John. He suffers, you see, from uh, multiple personalities. Strange. When they speak to John directly, he claims that he had dropped Vicky off at home, but that it were possible something may have happened between them during one of his frequent blackouts. Needless to say, 36-year-old John D. White becomes the prime suspect in the disappearance of Vicky Sue Wall, but without a body, they can't yet make an arrest. The affair had been exposed because of the investigation, and John checks himself into the Kalamazoo Psychiatric Hospital as a result. He had suffered some kind of mental breakdown. When Vicky's body is discovered by a man walking a nature trail, it is so badly decomposed and molested by wildlife that investigators are unable to lift any evidence from it, other than to ascertain that Vicky had been strangled with a zip tie and almost certainly raped, seeing as how her clothing was shoved up around her sun-bleached skull. At the psych hospital, John is again questioned, but refuses to speak. He does write his wife a letter, apologizing and saying goodbye, as he is certain he will be going away for a while. When investigators learn of this from John's wife, who is understandably perturbed that her husband is the prime suspect in the slaying of a woman he was having an affair with, they continue to press John and use a simple tactic to finally break him. They claim they know everything, and if John doesn't fess up, that things are just going to be more difficult for his wife and kids. From his bed in the mental hospital, where he's been playing catatonic for weeks, John D. White takes a plea. He admits to maybe strangling and raping the corpse of Vicky Sue Wall while in a blackout, in exchange for a plea of no contest for involuntary manslaughter. As a result, he receives an 8-15 to 15 year sentence, and there is little fanfare around the case. John wants his family to be affected as little as possible. His wife immediately divorces him, and John White heads back to prison. His final comment on the Vicky Sue Wall murder, or, sorry, involuntary manslaughter, was this, quote, Vicky's death was a tragic accident, and I loved her. Just about nobody can understand how a plea was arranged in a case that from many angles looked like a clear-cut homicide perpetrated by a man previously incarcerated for a similar crime. A word from a sheriff's deputy close to the case on that, quote, You'd like to see him go away for life, but you know, you get what you can get. I guess. As we know from the beginning, John Douglas White at some point found God and became a pastor. It is during this prison stint where he is allegedly saved, and when he is eventually released on February the 11th of 2007 on good behavior, Having served 13 years, that's 15 total for both crimes described here so far for those keeping score, 
John D. White is a free man in more ways than one. His wife and kids want nothing to do with him, so he hits the road and travels north, winding up in beautiful Mount Pleasant, Michigan, where our story began. He has them all fooled. Everybody. Even himself. Pastor John D. White believes he is saved, but still, quote, we need to check closely the seeds we spread in ourselves. Nothing can be hidden from God. John has bad seeds, still spreading within himself. He knows this when he meets Rebecca Gay, a high school grad when John first rolls into Mount Pleasant. But by 2012, she's just a fine piece of woman. Those are John's words to one of his congregates. Quote, wouldn't you like to have a piece of that, Rebecca? Rebecca Gay is the daughter of Sally Jane Gay, a Sunday school teacher and the fiancé of Pastor John White in this year of 2012. Middle-aged John has secured a trailer for he and his middle-aged bride-to-be and is ecstatic when his beautiful daughter-in-law-to-be, Rebecca, decides to join them at the trailer park by renting a couple of doors down. Life is good. John's past as a budding serial killer is firmly behind him. The community and the church have wholeheartedly embraced him, and it appears as though, despite the horrific first half of his life, that John D. White is going to come out clean. He is saved. He is blessed. Now, if he could only stop watching snuff porn and fantasizing about raping his daughter-in-law's dead body. In this year of 2012, Rebecca Gay is 24 years old, recently engaged, preparing for college while working as a manager at a Goodwill. She is a mother of a three-year-old boy from a previous relationship. His name is Conway, after the singer. You know, Twitty. In fact, Rebecca has a tattoo of the name Conway, with music notes around it. She is happy. Conway's happy. And the two are thriving in this new living arrangement at the trailer park. They enjoy nightly dinners with Pastor John and Grandma, who are living a couple trailers down, like I said. It is fall in Mount Pleasant, and the season is turning just as beautifully as Rebecca's life seems to be. But on October 30th, 2012, Devil's Night, not long after Rebecca and her three-year-old son Conway had just settled into their new living arrangement, the door to their trailer is silently opened by the creature man, John White. It's late. He's drunk. He's been watching his psycho-thriller porn. In his hand is a rubber mallet. In his pocket, some zip ties. John enters Rebecca's room where she sleeps soundly. Conway is not with her. He sleeps alone in his own bedroom. Thank God. John D. White should not be here. In the bedroom? Of course not. In a position of trust in a community that's completely unaware of his past crimes? Yeah, that too goes without saying. But John D. White should just not be in society in general. Though he is. And now he has once again positioned himself for the kill. He begins swinging the rubber mallet down, knocking the sleeping beauty deeper and deeper into the darkness. He pounds on her skull with the weapon until he's certain that she must be dead. But then she's awake and sputtering. Clearly different now, certainly brain damaged and unable to ever fully return to her former self, unable to ever fully awake, but struggling to come back all the same, to come back to her baby that sleeps in the next room, just to come back to life. John mutters to himself, Oh, 
I brought zip ties. He strangles Rebecca to death as she claws at him, then does what he came here to do. Rapes her corpse relentlessly for hours. Finally, in the middle of the night, the early Halloween morning of 2012, the creature man is satisfied. That was the one. That was the one he'd always been looking for. And now, it was time to pay the price for it. Well worth it, though. Well, well worth it. John White cleans up. He puts Rebecca's body into a contractor's bag and drags it out to his truck, which he'd parked out back. As Conway, three-year-old little Conway, continues to sleep soundly, such a good little kid, his mother is carted away. John dumps her nude, strangled, defiled body, tightly wrapped in a garbage bag, into a ditch a couple of miles away. He then returns to the trailer park and uses Rebecca's car keys to move her vehicle to the back parking lot of a nearby bar, the barn door. He then dumps the rest of the evidence, towels he used to clean up blood, Rebecca's clothes, her car keys, purse, cell phone, into a dumpster. Then returns to the trailer where he gets some sleep on the couch until little Conway wakes up. When he finally does, John tells him his mother has gone to work and gets some breakfast. He then dresses the boy up for Halloween, and as had been previously arranged between him and the boy's parents, he drives Conway out to meet up with his father, who was to have his son for this special day. It's a perfect plan, really. All is expected. And John then returns to the trailer park. He has lunch with the mother of his victim, his fiance. She's cowed by the ever-confident and aggressive preacher. Nothing really seems to be wrong, and if there was, I mean, it's none of your fucking business, lady. Where were you, John? Oh, well, I told Rebecca I'd drive Conway to his dad's, don't you remember? Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Where were you in the night, though? Oh, I couldn't sleep, dear. I went for a drive. Oh, okay, okay. You have a scratch on your nose? Oh, I do. I don't know. I don't know how. Shut the fuck up. What's for breakfast? And the creature becomes the preacher again as he bites into his sandwich, smiling as his victim's mother brings him tea. And that evening, when Rebecca doesn't come home, nobody's too concerned. But then her fiancé is asking if they've heard from her. She isn't with you. Then her work is wondering what's up. Then Conway's dad tries to return him, but Rebecca is missing. Good old Pastor John leads the search. Once Rebecca's car is spotted out back of the bar, that little pub called the barn door, and he goes there to ask questions. Do they have surveillance cams? No? Ah, oh, dang it. Well... Thanks for the help. All leads exhausted, John heads back to his church and calls on his followers to form a prayer chain for Rebecca. Investigators, meanwhile, are doing a real investigation. They're looking into whether or not Rebecca had any enemies or strange men in her life. When they speak to her co-workers and her friends, it becomes clear that at least one man stood out as strange in Rebecca's life. One pastor, John D. White. Apparently, John made a lot of women uncomfortable. The more investigators snooped around. And when they finally decided to look into this Pastor John's past, boy, how in the world had they had this menace living in Mount Pleasant and nobody was aware of it? They bring John in for questioning, and as always, it doesn't take long for John D. White to give in. After some light grilling, the pastor is in flames. He is riddled with guilt and wants to make a deal. 
John tells his accusers that he will tell them what they want to know if he's guaranteed protective custody and life without parole. It's almost like he wanted to be caught. It's almost like the trade-off were known to him was to his satisfaction that he'd accepted it before he'd committed the crime. He wants guaranteed protective custody and life without parole so he can't do this anymore. He also wants a single phone call. Deal. He calls Sally Jane, his fiancée and mother of this, his final perfect victim. He doesn't let her speak, just gets these words out before hanging up. Quote, Hi. Listen, shut up. I just want to tell you that you're the love of my life, okay? And you're probably not going to see me anymore, okay? Listen to me. I love you, and um, I'm sorry, but I can never fix it. End quote. John D. White hangs up the phone and turns his old, tired face to the investigators. Quote, I am definitely a monster. I really am a monster. End quote. He tells them where to find the body. He admits to the details of the murder, most of which I've already shared. And John D. White is eventually sentenced to between 56 and 85 years in prison, with protective custody, of course. Four months later, on August 28th of 2013, the protective custody fails him, as John D. White never accounted for the fact that he'd be spending the rest of his life alone with a killer. He is discovered hanging from a bedsheet at 4.38 a.m., perhaps the seeds of what he'd done in the small hours of that Halloween past, having grown into a psychic noose that had squeezed the preacher man's faith and closed the creature man's gate, leaving a ruin of a man, only one choice. It's just a shame he couldn't be there to have his way with the body. And that will do it. I want to acknowledge a podcast that helped me greatly in the research for this episode. Kentucky Fried Homicide, Episode 79, Pastor John White, The Devil in Disguise, was extremely helpful to listen to. I provided a link to their website in the show notes. That's Kentucky Fried Homicide. I was really blown away by the the in-depth research on that podcast. It made it ridiculous for me to continue with the research I was already doing once I heard their episode. It It was just really well researched Kentucky Fried Homicide and I'd like to shout out a couple of uh, Dark Topic listeners here some outstanding stuff recently Tracy Cash she was at CrimeCon in Las Vegas and apparently got up on stage and went to make like she was going to flash her boobs and she just flipped up her sweater and showed a Dark Topic t-shirt and I just thought that was fantastic Um, also uh, Fred Diedrich he uh, owns a coffee company called Iron Bean Coffee, uh, Murder Coffee. We've talked about him before, but Iron Bean. I'm a huge fan of uh, Fred Diedrich, and he's a big fan of uh, Dark Topic as well, apparently, because he sent me a picture, and I think this went viral, actually, of, of he rented a uh, like an airplane, and he was a passenger, and he just threw out this big flag on the sign that said, Stay Paranoid. Apparently, he dropped it, and it went down, and it knocked 
uh, a paraglider out. Uh, and he went spiraling down into the water. And we're not sure what happened to him, but, I mean, it made the news because of it. And I just am really appreciative of uh, the effort there, Fred Diedrich of uh, Iron Bean Coffee Co. Other than that, I hope everybody's doing all right. Um, I'm doing just fine. We have a lot going on as per usual. Patreon, I have Tier 5, Tier 13. Now we have Tier 50 where you get a random ridiculous shout-out, uh, completely made up. And um, we're really happy with the way everything's been going. We've just started on Apple, a subscription service on Apple, and, and you can get that through our 911 Calls with the Operator podcast where you will get 911 Calls Plus. That's twice the 911 Calls. And you will get the uncut versions of 911 Calls podcast where we talk a lot before we start the episode. Kent Chungus from True Crime Kent and myself, Jack Luna from Dark Topic, pair up with the operator every other uh, time that those episodes come out for 911 Calls podcast. So if you want additional content and don't want to go to, you know, another, you know, an app and sign up and all that kind of stuff, uh, to something like Patreon, you can do it very easily through the uh, Apple subscription service over there with 911 Calls Podcast and uh, come on to 1159 Media Plus and get extra content for five bucks a month. And uh, I will be back. I will be back real soon, I'm hoping, with a brand new dark topic. This is from the archives of Tier 13 at Patreon. Um, for those of you at Tier 13, I have the monthly monster coming out very shortly. It's a big one. This is a true monster. And uh, for those of you who don't know, every month on 1159 Media's Patreon at Tier 13, I put out a monthly monster covering a serial killer from the past that you might not have heard about. Also, uh, Kent from True Crime Kent uh, does a campfire now, TCK campfire, uh, talking about aliens, uh, ghosts, uh, cryptids, cryptiddies. And uh, then we have the operator from 911 Calls Podcast who does a secret transmission every month. And what it basically is at Tier 13 now is um, a backstage pass to all of our podcasts, and you get a taste of each of us there. Um, so check out all of our stuff there at 1159 Media Patreon. And like I said, again, if uh, you don't want to go that far, you can easily get the Tier 5 content um, through the subscription service on 911 Calls Podcast with the operator. I need to shout out Tyler Jakes. Some of his music was used in this episode. Go to tylerjakes.com for more of Tyler Jakes, a very talented and uh, underground musician who um, I'll take any opportunity I can to put some of his music onto an episode, and you heard it in the beginning and the end there. tylerjakes.com. Uh, Check him out. The Creature Man, The Preacher Man. Uh, I mean, they're out there. Sometimes, you know, the devil's in disguise. Uh, it'd be nice if he was always obvious, if all, all these monsters were, were, were completely obvious to us, but that would make for quick work on them getting apprehended. So, you know, eyes cocked, doors locked, and stay paranoid. Big love, thank you so much for all the support, and uh, I'll be back as soon as I possibly can be. Thank you.